movies were about a decade old when I turned 10 in 1960. You know, films like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder had come out when I was only four, and they were wildly successful. Unfortunately, when you live in Nakusa, Wisconsin, a town of 2,500 like I did, and the movie theater is operated by a guy living nearly 10 miles away, well, you get the picture. Or in my case, you don't get the picture. You know, we never really had any of those real 3D movies in our little town. Closest I remember getting was a black and white film called 13 Ghosts that featured scenes of ghosts that were sort of 3D if you used a special Illusiono glasses with the red filter option. And on a scale of 1 to 10 in the world of technology at the time, these were about a 0.5. And so for those of you with a pair of Oculus or Vive virtual headsets sitting on your shelf, you really can't relate to a 10-year-old boy sitting in a theater watching a black and white movie interspersed with moments of three-dimensional mayhem. Laugh if you want, <laughs> but I had a hard time walking home in the dark after that film. Hi, I'm Fran Chaka, the host of The Road to Shalom, a podcast that seeks to deepen our understanding of the world in which we live in, both the parts that make us wonder and those that make us weep. You know, in the last three episodes, which I ended up calling the One Story series, it generated the most responses I've had since launching The Road to Shalom, so thank you. But more important to me was the realization, clear realization, of just how many people are looking for a larger narrative in which to locate their own story on one hand, and an innocent ignorance of the one story of the one God on the other hand. And I have some ideas about why this is the case, and have become convinced that it's time I laid these ideas out on the table. But before I do, I also need to tell you that the next few minutes might seem like your last eye exam. You know, when the guy puts that thing in front of your face and spins the little dials and says, what's better, one or two? And after about five minutes of blurred madness, suddenly you can see clearly. Now, trust me, there's going to be a little blurriness for the next few minutes. But I promise you, if you're paying attention, I mean, really paying attention and not trying to text or grill chicken, it will be clear and it's going to make sense. All right. Here's the first bit of blurry. You know, I think personally, one of the main reasons many believers and even unbelievers see the Bible more as a beautiful patchwork than a tapestry, or maybe in another words, like an anthology of smaller books rather than a single coherent narrative, has to do with what we've built our faith upon. And I'm going to suggest that most of our spiritual understanding comes from systematic theology rather than biblical theology. Don't you dare hit the stop button. I told you this would be a little blurry. Put on your big boy pants and hang on. We can get do this together, okay? So, so what in the world is systematic theology, and what difference would it make if we built our spiritual house on it? Well, let me answer the first question first. Here's what one really smart guy said in a very large book about systematic theology. I think he really nails what it is quite clearly. Here's what he says. Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the Bible teach us today about any given topic? Systematic theology involves collecting and understanding all the relevant passages in the Bible on various topics and then summarizing their teaching clearly so that we know what to believe about each topic. All right, that's what he says is about systematic theology, okay? Now, another really smart guy had this to say about what biblical theology is. Here's what he said. Biblical theology 
is an attempt to balance historical and theological concerns, and it discerns the overarching story shape or narrative connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This approach discerns the narrative continuity running throughout the whole Bible. Two different opinions about two different kinds of theology, right? So systematic theology, in a nutshell, has to do with formulating doctrines by collecting scriptures that deal with a specific topic. And biblical theology has to do with formulating doctrines that emerge from the storyline of the Bible from cover to cover. Or maybe put another way, biblical theology is a theology that emerges from the one story rather than systematic theology that's extracted from the one story. Now, I know some listening are going to have issues with these definitions. But, and just for the record, I'm not throwing systematic theology under the bus. That's what my seminary degree is in, okay? But I'm becoming more and more convinced that by making systematic our foundation, we therefore limit ourselves to the doctrines within that system to make sense of everything else. And most of you have already been exposed to teaching on sin and justification and sanctification, the end times, the Holy Spirit, etc. All good, all good. But here's the problem. I think is this is the problem. The first is that since our spirituality is based on systematic theology, our understandings, our understandings of the entire Christian faith and how to live it are shaped and limited to the doctrines within that system. Let me say that again. That because our spirituality is based on systematic theology, our understanding basically of Christianity and how to live it, or of Christian faith and practice, are shaped and limited to the doctrines that are within that system. And if you flip through the 1,500 pages of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book, you'll not find any doctrines on wealth, or race, or justice, or creation care, or works, or of the poor, even though these topics are prominent themes in the biblical story. And the unfortunate consequence of these omissions is that our theology becomes personal and parochial, focused on me, that's the personal side, and us as Christians, that's the parochial side, rather than global and missional. In other words, focusing on them, that's the world, and him, that's God. So what I'd like to do is push further into this one story of the one God motif I introduced in the last few episodes, and I want us to explore some of the words of this story that we found ourselves in, to add some depth to our understanding, to kind of in a way add some dimensionality to our understanding of faith with the goal of an expanded meaning and joy to the way we live it out, all right? Or put another way, I'd like to expand our understanding from two-dimensional to three-dimensional, hence my intro about my childhood a few minutes ago, all right? But first, let's admit our tendency to become comfortable in our thinking, okay? A few weeks ago, I preached at my home church, and I asked the congregation, whose picture is on the front of the $100 bill, all right? Do you know? Now, if you're driving or out running, you probably just blurted out, Benjamin Franklin, feeling a little like you're ready to move on to the next round in Jeopardy, right? Well done, well done, all right? Next question, and you really should know this one better than the first one because the numbers are larger and more colorful, all right? What's on the back of the $100 bill? What's on the back? Let me guess. You have no idea. Now, don't feel bad. Ask anyone you know if they know 
and you'll quickly know that they don't know and didn't know that they didn't know. All right, hope that's clear. Seriously, I think it's really true that we tend to settle in on our understanding of a lot of things. Then we build boxes around the ones that are important to us, and over time, well, we don't ever start thinking outside that box. In fact, I suspect if you're like me, you even get a little uncomfortable when someone starts messing with the box you've built around some of these precious ideas. And this is unfortunate when it comes to important issues like justice, equity, and a host of other things. But beloved, it's tragic when we do this with our spiritual lives. And when it comes to the one story of the one God, well, sadly, I think most of us do the same thing to the story itself that we did to the $100 bill. We just become comfortable with the front side of the story without ever turning it over, so to speak. And we end up with a two-dimensional gospel that leads to a two-dimensional faith. In other words, it just lays there like a $100 bill front side up. We sort of put all of our theology, our what I call story words, into their appropriate little boxes and then try to go through the motions we associate with being a Christian, all the while thinking to ourselves when we're alone, is this all there is? And beloved, because familiarity destroys awe, we slowly become bored being two-dimensional Christians stuck in a three-dimensional world. I think it's time we awakened from our two-dimensional coma and upgraded our spirituality from version 2.0 to 3.0. And so over the next few episodes, we're going to free some of these story words from our story words from the two-dimensional boxes we're storing them in and take a look at the flip side with the goal of allowing the one story of the one God to take on the enormity in our minds that it has in God's. Or put another way, we're going to retire the Cliff Notes versions of the story we've been comfortable with and step more fully into the raging torrent of redemptive grace that the story really is in itself. Are you up for this? Okay, let's take our first word out of its box. It's the word sin. You know, sin's a big word in the faith community. <laughs> Actually, it's a big word in the human community. I just checked and I got over 3 billion hits on Google for the word sin. I mean, just for perspective, that's nearly three and a half times as many as I got for the name Jesus. So sin's a, a big word, a populous word. And I suspect you've got meanings and definitions for this word scattered all over your brain, especially if you grew up in church or a Christian family. And if you grew up in America, you've likely got some ideas about sin from the ghost of the Christian conscience still floating around in our post-Christian nation. So where does your mind go when you hear the word sin? You probably go first to yourself. If you're like me, you probably go quickly inward to those places in your memory that are hidden beneath the floorboards of your heart. Thoughts and feelings of guilt or shame or both. And guilt and shame before God for what you've done or left undone are likely the first stops on your mental journey to the find out the meaning of this word. If you've had some Sunday school, the weightier idea of your unrighteousness in the face of his blinding righteousness is also in your mind as well, right? Your uncleanness in the face of his holiness. And guess what? You'd be spot on about all of it. Beloved, make no mistake, the Bible is unambiguous in portraying sin just like this. I mean, sin shows up nearly once a chapter on average in the Bible. And verses like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are kind of tattooed on most of our cerebral cortexes. Or, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
So death spread to all of humanity because we all sin. You know, for many of us, these sin, guilt, punishment pictures are part of our mental furniture. Sin produces guilt, guilt results in judgment, and judgment results in death. And so if you want to deal with sin, you've got to deal with guilt. And fortunately, one of the dominant themes of the one story is that Jesus is the only solution to this entire mess. That's why our hearts literally sing when we hear these words from the pen of the Apostle Paul. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is what most of us think of when we take this first story word, sin, out of its box and look at it, at least the front side. And I think we'd agree that the front side of sin is guilt. My guilt, your guilt, all right, we're all pretty settled on what that means and why it's important. And also why God's solution to it is as precious to us at every level as it is. But beloved, this is only a two-dimensional view of sin. Sin also has a flip side. And I think we need to turn it over. So, So what is on the flip side of sin? I mean, if guilt's on the front side, what word can we put on the back side of sin? And I think the best word for the flip side of sin is the word corruption. I mean, now where in the world do I get that idea? Well, I get it from a closer look at Act 2 of the one story. Remember? Let's go back real quick. Act 1 was the commencement, the beginning of everything. All right? And at the end of Act 1, God looked at everything and made this amazing statement about it. He said it was good. In fact, he said it was very good. So let me ask you a question. What do you think happened that day in the garden? I mean, do you picture two naked people from Act 1 getting kicked out of the garden because of their sin in Act 2? I mean, do you picture Adam and Eve feeling guilty because they were guilty? That's the side we all know. It's the side that we tell people when we're trying to get them to consider Jesus. That's the front side, guilt. What's the flip side? Well, for starters, everything that God had said was very good in Act 1 suddenly wasn't in Act 2. Beloved, in Act 2, Sin's long tentacles began their spread out over everything and eventually everyone in every way. The whole universe kind of tilted that day. Now, how in the world can I say this? Where do we find any record of what else happened that day that can be traced directly to sin? Well, I want to introduce you to a really important little truth about the one story of the one God. In order to fully understand it, at least to better understand it. We've got to learn how to do something we'd never do with a great novel. We need to learn to read the one story backwards. That's right, backwards. And when we do, we discover a ton about the beginning of the one story from the end of the one story. I mean, to be more specific, the best way to understand Act 2, the fall of humanity into sin, is to read Act 5, Scene three in particular, which is the very, very end of the story, the book of Revelation. Listen to this passage from the second to the last chapter of the Bible. It's a description of the end of the one story. Here's what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. What the Apostle John calls the former things is a partial list of the collateral damage of sin, a glimpse of sin's corruption. And, according to John, unfortunately, they persist until the end of time, because that's when these things pass away. Act one of the one story ended with everything being very good. The former things in this passage are definitely not very good, that is, all right? Beloved, death is not very good. Death is always a thief, even for those of us who know Jesus. I mean, a half a million COVID deaths is one expression of sin's corruption. And there's more in this passage. Mourning, crying, and pain are also on the flip side of sin. They're expressions of sin's corruption as well. And beloved, these are violent words. They're disturbing words. Mourning is a word associated with profound grief. It's used two other places in the same book of Revelation, and it's connected there with torment and famine. This passage says that when God's story is complete, mourning will be gone forever. It also says that crying is going to be gone. And beloved, get the mental picture of someone sniffling or weeping out of your mind. This word is different. It points to the loud scream of heart-rending anguish. It's the cry of a mother standing over her child who's been hit by a car or hit by a bullet if you live in urban spaces. It's the voice of human heartache that's caused by sin's corruption. It's the cry of the soul that the things that mean the most to me are suddenly not very good. And the word pain. It's, it, it's a reference to ongoing anguish, the kind that eats away at us because there doesn't seem to be any way out. It's the transparent trauma of homelessness or the fatigue of the soul that comes from caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's. God says that when the end of the one story shows up, these four things can't stay. No more death, no more profound grief, no more crying out to God for help and deliverance, and no more waking up to hopelessness and despair. In the meantime, they're all too familiar. But that's not all. Sin's corruption reaches wider and deeper than just the human race. It's reached into all of the natural world. Everything that breathes and moves has been touched by sin's corruption. I mean, listen to the prophet Hosea speaking eight centuries before Jesus about the impact our sin has had on everything else that God has made. Or put another way, how we as people contribute to things no longer being very good in the natural world. Here's what he says. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now listen here, beloved. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. And the Apostle Paul echoes the same idea 800 years later, that the entire creation, all of it, is groaning right now because the corruption of our sin has infected it as well. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, because the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself, listen to this, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Beloved, in the one story, the entire creation wants to be free of the effects of sin's corruption. It wants to be very good again, in a sense. The prophet Isaiah, looking ahead to this day, to the end of the one story, tells us that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with a young goat, and a child will take a bear for a walk while her friends play with snakes. That's what very good looks like. That's what life is like when corruption is gone. Beloved, Adam and Eve didn't just get us kicked out of the pool and Jesus gets our membership back. God's plan of redemption is targeted to rescue all his creation from the effects of guilt and, and corruption. Reading the story backwards again, very end, Act 5, Scene 3, second to the last chapter of the story, we hear this. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Are you beginning to see just how enormous the one story is? I want you to forever know and celebrate that the one story includes you. It really does. But even more so, that it's much more than merely the personal solution to your personal problem. Sin's demise involves much more than you and I getting back into the garden. Sin is infinitely larger than just our guilt. And that means, as I've said so many times before, the gospel is not God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. And being a Christian, beloved, doesn't mean I have a, quote, personal savior, much like having a, quote, personal trainer. Seeing the flip side of sin should make it a much bigger deal than it is. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. And as it turns out, God wants to heal more than the problem of our personal guilt. Beloved, the center of the gospel is not us. It's God. And we lose sight of that sometimes. And the good news that we glibly call the gospel is so much bigger than the human race. Do you remember from the first episode I said that God had a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ? All things. That demands the removal of all the former things, the fruit of sin's flip side, the corruption that sin has caused. And the best part, are you ready for this? The best part, we, we are part of the solution. No, 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 not the guilt side. We can't solve that. Only God can solve that. And he has in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the flip side of sin, the corruption part, yep, that's us. We're the body of Christ on earth. We're the hands of Christ, the voice of Christ, the heart of Christ, the wallet of Christ, the extra car of Christ. You get the picture. We're to be what God is when it comes to dealing now with the former things that will be put away forever at the end of the story. And what is God? Well, among other things, according to lines taken from the story itself, he's a father to the fatherless, a protector of widows. He loves the refugee and he gives him food and clothing. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, beloved, it's an illustration of what it looks like in our own skin to deal with sin's corruption. So let's rejoice that our guilt is done away with and there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But let's also ask God to help us today and tomorrow 
to see where we might be the solution to sin's corruption in the life of another person, just like the Good Samaritan. It's a big deal to God because sin's a big deal to God. Both sides of it. Both sides of it. All right, before I go, I just wanted to highlight a video resource I've developed that's designed to help believers and unbelievers understand the gospel in light of this one story and the flip side of sin, all this stuff we've been talking about. The series is entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And I created it for groups or even one-on-one encounters to answer two questions. What is the gospel and does it really matter? And what is a disciple and what does one look like? And I can promise you, everything we've been looking at over the past episodes of this podcast are in this series. If you're looking for a way to engage a friend in a conversation about why the world is the way it is right now, and to do so in a generous and robust fashion, or maybe get a group of believers together to do the same thing, this will fit the bill. It's perfect for virtual or face-to-face settings. And you can test drive it, beloved, for free. And check it out for yourself and then make a decision. Just go to franchaka.com and click under videos and look for what's wrong with the world. Okay, next episode, we're going to look at the flip sides of two other of our story words. The words are grace and peace. And we're going to get an even better understanding of how we're part of the solution to the flip side of sin. I hope to see you then. Shalom. Shalom.